From KGW News, this is Straight Talk with Laurel Porter. Hello and welcome to Straight Talk. I'm Laurel Porter and a happy new year to you. This month, we begin our 13th year of Straight Talk. Our first show was January 9th of 2009, and we thank you for your support all of these years. In this episode of Stray Talk, the unprecedented start to 2021 in Washington, D.C., with the storming of the U.S. Capitol building by a violent pro-Trump mob. It happened as lawmakers were set to confirm Joe Biden and Kamala Harris as the winners of the 2020 presidential election. Oregon Senator Ron Wyden was there in the Senate when rioters broke in. He joins us to tell us more about what happened and about big developments in the Senate. This week, Democrats regained majority control of the Senate after winning both runoff races in Georgia. And that means Senator Wyden becomes the chairman of the powerful Senate Finance Committee. What that means for Oregon. I'm pleased to welcome as my guest, Oregon Senior Senator Ron Wyden. Senator, welcome back to Straight Talk. What a start to the new year. Did you ever think you'd see anything like what we saw this week in the Capitol? No. And the fact is that Donald Trump has proved once again that he is an unprecedented threat to our democracy. And now it is up to the appropriate officials to take those steps that are going to protect our people at this critical time. Well, this is a very fluid situation. We're taping just before noon Friday. You're speaking to us from Washington, D.C. And House Speaker Nancy Pelosi announced this morning she will move to impeach the president in the House for inciting the insurrection at the Capitol if he doesn't resign immediately. How much do you hold the president responsible for this? And how do you see this all playing out, especially given that he will be leaving office in less than two weeks? My, my view is the president is responsible for the carnage that we saw this week. Look, he spent weeks and weeks inciting this effort. This was not a one-time thing where he just tweeted once. He kept talking about a wild, wild set of events in Washington, uh, D.C. And the reality is we face an American carnage here and he did everything he possibly could over an extended period of time to promote it. Is impeachment or invoking the 25th Amendment to remove the president, is it a moot point since he's only in office for less than 12 days? As I said, Laurel, on the floor of the Senate during the debate, you know, Donald Trump at that point had two more weeks and he is a clear and present danger at any time. And so I do think it is critically important that the cabinet do its job and use the 25th Amendment, which is the fastest course for removing the president. And what do you think the likelihood of that is? We've seen uh, certainly discussions getting out uh, to the press and elsewhere about cabinet members uh, discussing it. I think that's why it's so important that you have two tracks. One of them is the 25th Amendment. The second is what Nancy Pelosi uh, promoted uh, today. I'm in support of both. 
It's hard to find words to adequately describe what we saw happen. The images are just stunning. And you were right there in the middle of a joint session of Congress in the process of counting electoral college votes to confirm Joe Biden's victory when there was the siege at the Capitol. We, we saw the shot of you with some of your aides being rushed to safety. Describe for us when you realized you and others might be in danger. Walk us through what happened. As we began to get word that the Capitol was under siege, that the doors were uh, being breached. It was a horrifying experience in every sense. And remember what you have to think about is not just the members of Congress who of course were uh, seen uh, being escorted, but you think about cafeteria workers. You think about people who do so much good work for uh, those who come and visit and, uh, and the like. And to see this citadel of liberty uh, assaulted this way and to see it being done because the president of the United States was interested in only one thing, and that was to put the Congress through a bogus exercise, which in, in effect was designed to tell the American people something false. The Congress does not have the authority to set aside the votes of the American people. So all of this was done because Donald Trump is so narcissistic that all he was thinking about was himself and not the well-being of our country. We saw photos of some of the senators and, and House members having to put on gas masks, these, these hoods. I, it must have been so frightening. What was going through your head? What was the mood at the time? The mood, of, of course, was to see if there was a plan to protect the, the, the Capitol and to protect the, the members and the staff. And obviously there was a lot sort of being done by Audible is that you see uh, that the uh, domestic terrorists, because that's what these people are, Laurel. People said, oh, they're thugs, they're hooligans. They're domestic terrorists because they were trying to use intimidation to carry out a political agenda, which was to set aside uh, the process of certifying the votes. And because these domestic terrorists clearly were trashing the Capitol. We've seen all the destruction. A big part of the plan was to just make sure that uh, safety was maintained by trying uh, to protect uh, the doors and to move uh, members uh, to places of safety. There was a lot of reporting ahead of this event about the many pro-Trump protests planned for Wednesday. There was a lot on social media. The New York Times reported Friday morning Trump supporters were talking online for a long time about occupying the Capitol. Why wasn't there more security? What's your understanding? I think we all thought the Capitol would be a lot more secure than that. We now are starting to see plans for what's called a kind of after action kind of audit. And we've seen resignations already. One key individual has resigned, but clearly there has got to be a top to bottom fresh look at how this uh, happened. And again, I, I want uh, Oregonians to, to know that there are so many people working in this um, capital complex who are not involved in, in security 
and we want to make sure that they and everybody else, in addition to members, are protected. President-elect Biden said what a lot of Americans were thinking, that there was a double standard between how the rioters, the insurrectionists were treated at the Capitol this week and Black Lives Matter protesters, how they were treated last year. Let's listen to what Biden said Thursday. No one can tell me that if it had been a group of Black Lives Matter protesting yesterday, there wouldn't have been, they wouldn't have been treated very, very differently than the mob of thugs that stormed the Capitol. We all, we all know that's true. And it is unacceptable, totally unacceptable. Senator, what are your thoughts and what should be done to address it? I believe that uh, the president-elect is making a valid point. And by the way, let's kind of connect it to what uh, black community leaders are saying in Portland. Um, I'm a guy who believes deeply in peaceful protest, but I'm not for violence. And that's, of course, what we saw um, here in the Capitol. Uh, our black community leaders, to their credit, have also come out squarely against violence. They have, in effect, said that violence, the kind of violence that we've seen in Oregon, we've seen downtown and, uh, and elsewhere, that that actually takes away from the Black Lives Matter uh, position. So I think that uh, the president-elect is absolutely right in terms of the big picture, is that we have seen a very different uh, set of approaches as it relates to Black Lives Matter and to uh, their credit, black community leaders in Oregon have said they're against violence, period. What about the role of social media, Facebook, Twitter, Google's YouTube in fomenting the violence and chaos? Should they be held accountable? And if so, how? Well, remember, um, Laurel, the person who is accountable online is the person who created the content. So you cannot you know, say that it is a platform that's ultimately responsible. Certainly the platforms need to do more to weed out um, unacceptable speech and, and speech that promotes violence and, and hate. But ultimately it's the person who creates the content who's responsible. Before this all happened, Senator, there were pivotal Senate runoff races in Georgia, as you know, that have changed the balance of power in the Senate. Democrats will now have majority control, and that means you will be the chair of the Senate Finance Committee. You were briefly in 2014 as well. What does that mean to you, Senator, and to Oregon? Laurel, what the race in Georgia was all about was choices. The Republican candidates there were basically for more tax breaks for the multinational corporations and the affluent and kind of trickle-down economics. We believe, and the candidates in Georgia believe, that you grow the economy from um, the middle out. So we're going to be focused in the first package on those $2,000 checks. We got a lot of people in Oregon who are walking an economic tightrope, balancing their food bill against the fuel bill and the fuel bill against uh, the rent bill, those $2,000 checks are going to be hugely important. And then I'm going to push for an extension of my unemployment legislation, which has become a model, an extra $600 per week, each week for those who have been laid off through no fault of their own and help for 
gig workers and the self-employed and independent contractors. And what I'm going to be focused on as the chair of the Senate Finance Committee are those economic issues that Oregonians talk about in their kitchens and, and living rooms. I know it's easy to get distracted and waylaid in this whole political debate in Washington, uh, D.C. So, uh, so often. I'm going to be focused on those economic concerns that people are talking about in their living rooms and kitchens across our state, uh, from rural Oregon to, uh, to the metro area. Well, the Finance Committee also has jurisdiction and influence on the nation's health care system. And you said, and you, you mentioned this a little bit earlier, that the racial justice protests of the last year have inspired you to look at racial injustices also in the health care system. What do you want the committee to do to try to address those inequities? First, I want to make sure that there's equal access to services. You know, you see in the white affluent uh, uh, suburbs, amazing uh, kinds of healthcare services. And in communities of color, you often have what I call healthcare deserts. So I want to see equal access to services. And for example, blacks have a much higher rate of maternal mortality than, than, uh, than do whites. I'm very proud of the mental health uh, proposal that we've put together. It's called the CAHOOTS bill. It's modeled after what began in um, Eugene. And there was an article in one of the national magazines that said, here's a police uh, reform that law enforcement and uh, health uh, healthcare advocates are getting getting behind. And then I'm going to be also zeroing in on uh, changing the laws that restrict Medicare from negotiating uh, to hold down prescription drug prices. We ought to be doing everything we can to hold down those costs of medicine. Insulin is basically the same insulin we had like decades ago, but the prices just go up and up. I want to lift those Medicare restrictions so Medicare can negotiate to hold down the cost of medicine. And finally, Laurel, here's a number for your viewers to remember. We spent last year $3.8 trillion on health care. Uh, we can get a whole lot more for that money. If you took that money, you could basically give every family a for a check for $40,000. Now, nobody's talking about doing that, but we can sure get a lot more for that health care, uh, $3.8 trillion we spent last year than we're doing. By, by doing what? Well, I just mentioned um, prescription um, drug uh, changes so that you use the government's bargaining power to hold down uh, uh, the cost. I think that we ought to be providing more care for folks at home. That's part of my independence at home bill, which is an alternative um, to nursing homes. And then I'm the uh, ringleader in, uh, in the Congress for promoting more telemedicine using technology as a way to eliminate some of those office visits and get people uh, taken care of in a more convenient way, even if it's remote. Which I know you say the telehealth would really help uh, rural Oregon. And, and also someone that's on board with helping rural parts of the country is your uh, colleague, Idaho Republican Senator Mike Crapo. He was in line to be the chair if Republicans had maintained control. And you have a close relationship with him, I understand, and his office is right down the hall. Do you think you'll be able to work with the Republicans and pass some bipartisan legislation? I always uh, try to find co common ground, uh, uh, Laurel. You know, the fact is Mike Crapo and I found common ground between environmentalists and industry people and scientists on our landmark bill to change the way that we fight fire. You know, traditionally, you saw government agencies raid the prevention uh, funds, the fire prevention funds to put the fire out. What Mike Crapo and I were able to do is say, we're gonna fight the big fires from the disaster funds 
and make sure we have that money so we can do more fire prevention. So he and I have worked together often, and uh, I think we can find common ground in a variety of areas. Well, we'll continue our conversation with Senator Wyden and let you know how you can ask him questions in a virtual town hall. And we're going to talk a little basketball. We're back in two minutes. Welcome back to Straight Talk. I'm Laurel Porter. And once again, welcome to our first guest of 2021, Oregon Senator Ron Wyden, speaking to us from Washington, D.C. Welcome, Senator, once again. I was listening to you on the Senate floor on Wednesday night and after the siege on the Capitol, you said if Republicans had really wanted to prevent any voter fraud, they should have supported your vote by mail bill. Do you see that bill coming up again? And do you think it has a better chance of passing for a nationwide system to be implemented? I'm going to make sure it comes up again and I'll have a lot of additional support after this last election. You know, it's been striking, uh, Laurel. I have been trying to take the Oregon vote by mail idea national for years and years. What happened during the pandemic is a lot of people saw that the best way to vote safely in 2020 was vote by mail. I had people coming up to me and saying, Ron, your idea is basically getting off the ground just because of the pandemic, even before uh, you pass a law. But what I've tried to do is first of all, you asked about social media earlier. You know, the big issue with social media is Donald Trump was trying to bully Twitter to print his lies about vote by mail because he kept talking about how horrible vote by mail was, was encouraging cheating, but Donald Trump and his cabinet all used vote by mail. So to kind of put it in, in perspective, once again, you saw with Donald Trump and voting by mail, the hypocrisy that uh, you see so often in Washington, D.C. One rule for them, one rule for everybody else. I think it's time to take the Oregon idea um, national and make it possible for everybody in every nook and cranny to vote by mail. And I'm going to keep pushing uh, my bill until we get it done. People listening may have a lot of questions for you, and you're known for all the town halls you've had. I think you're coming up on about a thousand town halls, aren't you? We are. And, uh, and obviously, a virtual town hall is uh, different than in-person uh, town halls. I've always said there's nothing better than to just make it possible to take an hour and a half or so and just have Oregonians look you in the eye and you can respond to, to a question. But we're trying to make sure that virtual town, town halls do give people a chance to be heard in every corner of Oregon. And my hope is that later this year, we're going to be able to go back to the Oregon way, which is doing those meetings in person. Let's hope we can get back to normal soon. We have a graphic of the virtual town halls that you've slated for next week. I think you're holding eight of them. One is in Washington County for folks there. It's a week from Sunday on January 17th. There's also one in Lane County on the 14th. Oregonians can submit questions ahead of time, and I'll put a link on our web story on KGW.com. What do you think the number one question is going to be people have? I think it'll again be about the, about the economy. And, you know, Laurel, you asked about what are my priorities going to be at the, the finance committee. Oregon is mostly a small business state. Now, I led the effort to make sure that the thousands and thousands of small businesses in Oregon could get the deductions, the tax write-offs for expenses associated with the PPP program, the Paycheck Protection uh, Program. 
So I am going to be focused on those small business issues, whether it's promoting more opportunities for them in terms of exports. You know, one out of four jobs in Oregon revolves around um, international trade. Manufacturing is a huge opportunity for innovative Oregon small businesses. And those will be the kinds of issues I'll focus uh, uh, on as chair of the Finance Committee. I'm sure the questions at those town halls are going to be the economy. You're up for re-election next year, and there was some speculation you might retire with a lot of potential candidates in Oregon eyeing higher office, but you've said you are running again. Do you have any reflections on that, given what we've seen and experienced this week? What do you still want to do in 2022? I'm running because there is so much important work uh, to do for our state. Uh, for example, one area that'll be a special priority for me on the Natural Resources Committee, I proposed a 21st century civilian conservation uh, court. This would be an opportunity for thousands of young people to go to work in the woods. And we've got so much to do to prevent those kinds of fires that just devastated our, our, our state uh, uh, this year. We ought to be going in there and thinning out some of those overstocked uh, stands. I've got a major bill on what's called prescribed burns where in the colder weather, you go in and burn a little bit in order to prevent the big fires, the really uh, heat and wind generated big fires in, in, in the summer. So it's going to be, for me, an opportunity to debate big ideas with, with Oregonians that are going to give us a safer, more secure future uh, across Oregon and create a lot of opportunities for folks to get the jobs where they can make a living. Before we go, I, I want to lighten it up just a little bit. People may or may not know that you played high school and college basketball. We have a great photo of you that we dug up from your days at Palo Alto High School where you were a star. You also played at my alma mater, UC Santa Barbara, and you dreamed of being in the NBA, right? Yeah, it was kind of ridiculous because it, at 6'4", I was too small, and I made up for it by being really slow. But since KGW did their podcast uh, um, and brought in Ennis Cantor. Somebody told me the other day, uh, called up and said, let's have our own show, Round Ball with Ron. And so I think I probably ought to stick to my day job, but uh, I certainly a big, big fan. I'm looking forward to seeing Ennis on this trip home. Well, I, I love the idea of your own show because you are a big fan of the Trailblazers. And as you <laughs> mentioned, you've developed quite a friendship with Ennis Cantor. You were recently surprised when you were a guest on KGW's three on three Blazers podcast. Let's watch what happened. Just basically getting acquainted. So this is not, oh my God, <laughs> I got a perk. You can't be my buddy is right there. Ennis, we're bragging on you, man. Hi uh, you guys, how you doing? You had so much fun on that podcast talking about Cantor and basketball and also that he wants to go into politics. He, he does. And I'll tell you, there's a kind of phrase that uh, you hear in, 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 in basketball when it comes to people and Ennis's ability to listen and to connect with the citizens and talk about uh, their interests, which is key to, uh, to political success. I'll tell you, my friend Ennis Cantor, has got what we call the shooter's type. And you also teased on that show that you might be working on some projects together. Can you tell us any more about that? Yeah, I'm, I'm not uh, gonna front run uh, Ennis because I, I wanna make sure that we do it together, but uh, I really appreciate his leadership in terms of human, human rights. And he's always looking 
for a way to advance a uh, human rights agenda, take on the, the autocrats, the tyrants, people like Erdogan who bullied him and bullied his family and tried to keep him from being able to, to move uh, freely around, around the world. And Ennis is speaking for a lot of Oregonians when he talks about how we do need uh, uh, politics and political debate to do more to lift human rights. And I appreciate him using his bully pulpit to do it. Well, hopefully we can talk more basketball on a future show. And I want to encourage our viewers to check out that podcast with Ennis Cantor and Ron Wyden and also with our, our crew here at KGW. There were a lot of great stories. I'll put a link to the story on KGW.com. Senator Wyden, thank you as always for joining us. And we wish you the best of luck and everything in, in 2021. And thank you for watching Straight Talk. Thank you for joining us for 13 years. We hope you have a great week and we'll see you next week for Straight Talk.